Chapter six of the Astonishing History of Troy Town by Sir Arthur Thomas Quillacooch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter six How Certain Trojans Climbed a Wall Out of Curiosity, and of a Charwoman That Could Give No Information. Meanwhile, curiosity in Troy was beating its wings against the closed doors of the Bower. The early morning train next day brought three domestics to supplement the youth in buttons and supplant the chairwoman. Miss Limpany, in déshabille, but at a decent distance from the window, saw them arrive, and called Lavinia to look, with the result that within two minutes the sisters had satisfied themselves as to which was the cook, which the parlour-maid, and which the kitchen-maid. Later in the day a van-load of furniture arrived, though the bower was already furnished. But, as Miss Limpany said, in all these matters of comfort and refinement, there are degrees. On this occasion the Admiral, who had been prevailed upon to leave his bed, executed a manoeuvre the audacity of which should have commanded success. He crossed the road, and opened a conversation with the driver. But success does not always wait on the brave. The van-driver happened to have a temper as short as the Admiral's, and far less reverence. "'Good morning,' said the Admiral cheerily. "'Morning. What's afoot to-day?' "'Same as yesterday, twelve inches.' The Admiral was rather taken aback, but smiled nevertheless, and persevered. "'Ha, ha, ha! Very good. You are a wit, I perceive.' But the driver's conversation teemed with the unexpected. "'Look here, ruby-face. Give me any more of your sass, and I'll punch your head for tuppence.' This was conclusive. The Admiral struck his flag, recrossed the street, went indoors, and had it out with Mrs. Buzzer. Indeed, at the end of half an hour, that poor lady's feelings were so overwrought, and in consequence her sobs so loud, that the Admiral had perforce to get out his double bass and play a selection of martial music, to prevent Miss Limpity's hearing them on the other side of the partition. All this happened early in the afternoon. Towards five o'clock, Miss Limpany, who had only left her post twice, and on each occasion to snatch a hurried meal, was rewarded for her patience. The front door of the bower opened, and Miss and Mrs. Goodwin Sandys appeared, dressed, as Miss Lippity would see, for a walk. "'Now I wonder,' reflected that kind soul, "'which direction they will take. Personally, of course, I should prefer them to pass this window, but I hope I can subdue private inclination to public spirit, and for Troy's sake I hope they will visit the castle first. The salubrity of the air, as well as the expansiveness of the view, will be certain to impress them favourably. Dear, dear, I wish I could advise them.' Should they take the direction of the town, I know by experience they will be apt to meet with an effluvium of decaying fish, and I should so like their stay among us to be begun under pleasant auspices. But almost before Miss Limpany had concluded these reflections, the strangers had determined on the direction. They turned neither towards the town, nor up the hill towards the castle and the harbour's mouth, but down the little road which led to Bowerslip and the Penpoodle ferry-boat. "'Gracious me!' exclaimed Miss Limpany. "'They're going to take a boat!' The words were scarcely out of her mouth when she was seized with a sudden idea, an idea so alluring, yet so bold withal, that the blood flew from her cheeks. She made a step forward, paused, took another step, and returned to the window. The strangers had turned down the road and were out of sight. For a full minute she stood there, tapping her foot. "'I will,' she said with sudden determination. "'I will!' On Miss Limpany's maiden lip the words were as solemn as though she spoke them at the altar. "'I will, and I don't care what happens.' 
awful words, awful in themselves, more awful from such lips, but surely most awful as making the second step in the moral decadence of Troy. Yet I would not have my readers too excited. They were words to shudder at indeed, but the immediate consequences were not bloody. They were only to a limited degree tragic. It must be remembered that the magnificence of all actions is relative to the performer, nor would I seek to exalt Miss Limpity to the level of a Semiramis or a Dido. Only when I say that she bore a great soul and a little body, I say no more than that she was a Trojan. In short, Miss Limpity did not, as the reader may have expected, take a boat and pursue after the strangers. What she did was simply to descend swiftly to the front hall, take down from its stand an antique brass-bound telescope of enormous proportions, and with it make her way swiftly to the back door. The back gardens of Alma Villas ran parallel to each other, and were terminated by a high wall with a key door apiece, a tall ladder leading from the door straight down to the water. At the end of the garden, and built against this wall, in each case a stone terrace with a flight of steps allowed anyone who chose to climb, and even perform a limited promenade, while enjoying a full view of the harbour beyond. It was to this flight of steps that Miss Limpany, with a prayer on her lips and the telescope under her arm, made her way. Both terrace and steps were rickety to a degree. To help you to estimate her conduct as its full temerity, I may mention that Miss Limpany had never attempted the climb before in her life. But whatever qualms she may have felt, they did not appear in her behaviour. Gingerly, but without hesitation, and clutching the telescope which impeded her as an ice-axe the rock-climber, she essayed all the perils of this maiden ascent. Five minutes' stiff climbing, as they say in the Alpine Journal, brought her to a point where she could take breath and look about her. Despite her terror, the excitement and the light breeze now blowing over the arete of garden wall had brought a flush to her cheek. But scarcely had she resumed and set her foot upon the summit, when the flush suddenly faded and left her blanched as snow. For there, not a foot to her right, and above the crest of the partition wall, rose another telescope, the exact counterpart of her own. The spectre on the brocken was nothing to this. She clutched to the rotten stones, and panted for breath. Slowly, very slowly, the rival telescope was tilted up against the harbour wall. Very slowly it rose in air. Then came a pair of hands, of blue cuffs, and then the crimson face of Admiral Buzzer soared into view like the child's head in Macbeth. He did not see her yet, being absorbed in adjusting the telescope. Terror-smitten, too fearful to advance or retreat, clinging to the telescope with one hand as a drowning mariner might grasp a spar, and clutching with the other at the crumbling wall, Miss Limpany stood arrested, wildly staring, scarce venturing to breathe. The Admiral's telescope was tilted into position, and the Admiral half-turned his head before applying his eye to the hole. She could not help it. In spite of all her efforts to repress it, a little gasping squeal of a fright broke from her. The Admiral, with a start, withdrew his eye quickly from the glass, and looked over the wall. "'Damnation!' Uh, this was the Admiral, by the way. What happened exactly this moment will never be known, or whether the Admiral's voice brought down a serac of rotten wall is not clear. There was a rumbling sound, an oath or two, and then both telescope and admiral disappeared with a crash from view. Miss Limpity screamed, dropped her telescope, which went rattling down the steps, 
cowered desperately against the wall, shut her eyes, screamed again, trod on a tilting slab, hung for a moment, toppled, clutched wildly at space, and shot with a rush and shower of stones straight to the very bottom. Miss Lavinia Limpany, who, startled by the screams, had rushed to the window and witnessed the last stages of the catastrophe, was out in a minute. Tenderly raising her sobbing sister, she assisted her back to the house, and attended to the bruises with a combination of arnica, vinegar, and brown paper. On the other side of the wall the Admiral lay for some time and bellowed for help, until his frightened family bore him in and attempted to put him to bed. But mark the heroism of the truly great. In spite of his late treatment at the hands of his fellow-citizens, treatment which still rankled, here was no Coriolanus to depart in a huff to Antium. The Admiral had a duty to perform, a service due to his ungrateful town, and on the subject of going to bed he was adamant. "'See, ceremony! Your tears, your protestations are in vain! Stop, I tell you! Get me my uniform!' Surely some desperate, some decisive step was contemplated when the Admiral ordered out that gold-laced coat and cocked hat that once had shone in the blue squadron of Her Majesty's Navy. What could this stern magnificence portend?' The Admiral had made up his mind. He was going to interview Mrs. Snell, the charwoman. It was a pretty fancy, and one not without parallel in the history of famous men, that inspired him at his crisis to assume his bravest attire. There is, to my mind, a flavour in the conceit, a bravado lifting the action above mere intrepidity into actual greatness. Nor in this little Iliad are there many figures that I regard with more affection than that of Admiral Buzzer at his garden gate waiting for Mrs. Snell. When at length she issued from the bower and came down the road, the effect of the gold lace was rather striking. She dropped her bundle and her lower jaw together. "'Look, sir, how you did frighten me, to be sure! I thought it was the devil!' That was hardly what the Admiral had expected. He beckoned with his forefinger mysteriously. Mrs. Snell advanced, as though not quite sure that her first fright was unfounded. "'Mrs. Snell,' inquired the Admiral in a whisper, "'what are they like?' He pointed melodramatically towards the bower as he asked the question. Again the unexpected happened. Mrs. Snell burst into loud and hysterical sobbing. Oh, don't he, sir, don't he? I can't bear it. Not a thing can you do to please him, and the Honourable Frederick are damning about the arse fit to make your flesh creep. And that, though he might have ate his dinner off the floor, gold studs and all, as I told him at last. For it wasn't in flesh and blood, sir, not to be ordered this way and that by a whippersnapper, whose grandmother I might have been. "'though he has got three rows of shiny buttons on his stomach, "'which is no cause for a brow carriage to them as hasn't, "'nor calling em slow coaches and names which I won't soil my tongue with, and, "'and so I said, "'Oh, dear, oh, dear!' "'And here Mrs. Snell's passion again found vent in violent sobs and cries. "'Hush! Confound it! Hush, I tell you! "'You'll have the whole town out!' "'I beg your pardon, sir, <laughs> but it isn't in nature, "'such wickedness in high places!' "'And poor Maria's sick at home with a colic "'and a leak in the roof you might put your cocked hat through. "'A very funny look, sir, begging your pardon again, "'which is all vexation or spirit and a shilling a day "'and your victuals are let alone being sworn at "'till you don't know whether you be upon your head or your heels.' "'With this Mrs. Nell picked up her bundle "'and marched off down the road. "'She was quite hopeless, the Admiral determined, "'as he watched her retreating figure "'and heard her sobs borne back to him on the evening air.' Well, well, it had been another reverse, but not a defeat. His face cleared again as he turned to re-enter the house. Let me see. Tomorrow is Sunday. They will probably be at church. 
In the afternoon, though it involve the loss of my usual nap, I will consider. On Monday I will act. Even the strangers themselves, as they walked up the aisle of St. Sephorian's Church, Troy, on the following morning, could not but perceive something of importance to be in the wind. That the church should be full was not unusual, for in those days Sunday observance was the rule among Trojans. But on this particular day the Wesleyan and Bible Christian chapels must have been sadly depleted, so great was the crush. And besides, there was the unwonted magnificence of dress, the stir caused by the simultaneous turning of some hundred bonnets as the Goodwin Sandys entered, the audible whispering as they took their seats, the nervousness of the vicar, who twice dropped his spectacles over the reading desk and once over the pulpit. On this last occasion one of the glasses was broken, and the sermon in consequence became, towards the end, a trifle involved. All this made the service rather hysterical. "'Tell me, my muse, thou who sittest at the tea-table and rejoicest in the rattling of cups, who were they that attended St. Sephorian's church on this Sunday morning? First, there were the Mrs. Limpany, in black tabinet dresses and lace shawls, a cameo brooch adorned the throat of each, and from her waist a reticule depended. These first directed the gold-bound optic glass at the stranger's pew. Behind them sat the doctor and his wife, the one conspicuous for his black stock, the other for a shawl of paisley workmanship. Next the harbour-master, tall Mr. Strip, with his daughters Tryphena and Tryphosa. Nor would Mrs. Strip have been absent had she not been buried some years before. Yellow-haired were both the daughters, and few knew better the prevailing fashion in dress. These whispered concerning Mrs. Goodwin Sandy's costume. By them sat Mr. Mugridge, the poet, good at the responses, and Sam Buzzer, his friend, whom few Trojans excelled in casting glances at the female congregation. Then, most gorgeous and bravest of all, the Admiral. He wore again his gold-laced coat, but the cocked hat rested underneath the seat, and none could fathom the import of his gaze. By him sat his three daughters, a row, in straight-backed dresses of like cut and colour, and peeped over their prayer-books, and Mrs. Buzzer, timorous, in bright green satin. But of the throng of Trojan men and women, not though I had a hundred mouths, etc., etc. "'Her dress must have cost nine shillings a yard if it cost a penny,' said Miss Limpany, when they were outside in the open air. She looked at the ground as she said so, for she could forget neither the nightcap nor the telescope. The Admiral was silent. "'She is very lovely,' remarked Mrs. Buzzer. "'And did you remark how the vicar paused in the litany when he came to all the nobility?' "'I was particularly careful to pray for Lord Sinkport,' said Calypso innocently. Still the Admiral was silent. That afternoon Mrs. Buzzer, stealing softly into the back parlour, lest she should disturb her lord, was amazed, in place of the usual recumbent form with a bandana of its face, to find him sitting up, wide awake, and staring gloomily. "'My dear!' she began in her confusion. The Admiral turned a gorgon stare upon her, but made no answer. Under its petrifying influence she backed out without another word, to communicate with the girls upon the portent. This mood of the Admiral's lasted all day. Next morning, at breakfast, he looked up from his bacon, and observed, with the air of a man whose mind is made up, "'Emily, see that the girls have on their best gowns by eleven o'clock sharp. I am going to pay a call.' Consternation sat on every face. Sam Buzzer paused in the act of breaking an egg. "'At the bower?' 
he asked. At the borough. Mrs. Buzzard clasped her hands nervously. The girls turned pale. Oh, very well, said Sam, tapping his egg. I shouldn't wonder if I'd turned up while you were there. He was a light-haired, ungainly youth of about twenty, with a reputation for singing a comic song. It was understood that the Admiral designed him for college and holy orders. But meanwhile time was passing, and Sam sat with idle hands at home, or more frequently in the bar of the man-of-war. "'You?' exclaimed his father. "'Well, I don't see what there is in that to be surprised about,' replied the youth with an aggrieved air. "'I met the Honourable Frederick smoking a cigar out on the rope-walk last night. His cigars are very good, and he asked me to drop in soon and try another. He isn't a bit stuck up.' The Admiral's feelings were divided between annoyance at the easy success of his son, and elation at finding the stranger so unexpectedly affable. He rose. "'Girls, remember to be punctual. I will show this town of Troy that I am not the man to be laughed at.'" End of chapter 6